If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Welcome to Let's Talk, a monthly podcast where we discuss issues pertaining to advanced practice nurses. I am your host, Wendy Carson-Smith. Today, our guest is Jennifer Flynn, an expert in risk management and professional liability. Jennifer Flynn is risk manager for a nurses service organization in the healthcare division of IONS Affinity Insurance Services Incorporated. Jennifer is dedicated to using her more than 18 years of experience in the healthcare business to educate nurses and health professionals on professional liability risk and offers strategies to mitigate those risks. She is a published author on various risk management topics, and she frequently speaks across the country on healthcare risk and liability. Jennifer is also a certified professional in healthcare risk management and a licensed property and casualty agent. And I guess, do I call you the author of or the editor of the Nurse Practitioner Claim Report? I'm a contributing author. Yes. Thank you, Wendy. From what I know about Jennifer, she's worked on this claims report, which is instrumental to understanding advanced practice liabilities and risks since its inception. So first of all, let me thank you, Jennifer, for everything you have done with this report. It is truly insightful and it provides us with interesting data as well as practical recommendations related to how to address and identify professional liability exposure. It is an honest and accurate assessment of claims associated with nurse practitioners, and it dispels many of the myths that have developed and and promulgated throughout the country. Tell us first, how did you get started on, on doing the claims report? Well, sure. Well, I just wanted to say thank you again, Wendy, for this opportunity. It's really great to be here today and to talk about nurse practitioner liability claims. I became involved with our analysis of claims against nurse practitioners, probably going back to earlier than I would say 2012. This is our fourth claim report or claims analysis that we have done against claims against nurse practitioners. And so really since around 1990. For up until the present day, we have been analyzing our claims against um, nurse practitioners. So I became involved in that way just because of my interest in and my role here at NSO to not only make nurse practitioners aware of the risks that they face in daily practice, but to give them those risk strategies and that those recommendations that they can incorporate into their practice to really increase patient safety and reduce the likelihood of a, of a professional liability lawsuit. Explain to us the differences and the criteria used to define the database in this 2017 report as opposed to previous studies. Sure. So actually the data uh, and the criteria that we used for this 
um, 2017 report is the same criteria we used for the previous report that we published in 2012. Prior to that, we were looking at um, different criteria, but still looking at claims against nurse practitioners. Since 2012, we have agreed to move forward with our underwriter, CNA, to look at claims in the same, with the same criteria so that we can reflect back on previous data sets and see where are things the same, where are things different, and are there any trends that can be seen um, from the data that we need, to, we need to be alerted to. So just to give you a sense of the criteria we used for both the 2012 and 2017 data sets is that we really look at claims against a nurse practitioner, an NP practice, or even a student, um, NP student. And regardless of when the claim was first um, initiated, we looked at this in this most recent data set, we looked at the claim close between 2012 and 2016. And with both data sets, we looked at claims that were had a threshold of an indemnity payment or a payment made to an injured third party, um, really at that $10,000 or greater threshold. And the reason why we did that was really because claims that are above that $10,000 threshold really give us detailed insight into where those deviations from standard of care um, occurred that led to the patient injury. And the patient injury was also severe enough that there was a payment made, you know, to that injured third party to, quote unquote, make them whole. So we had more information to gather uh, from those claims at that threshold at 10000 and above. Now, how many NPs and NP students does your company insure? And do you know what percentage overall that those numbers represent in terms of the general population of nurse practitioners and nurse practitioner students? Sure. Um, so we we are we hover around just about twenty five twenty six thousand nurse practitioners across the country that we insure, and this might be that they're insured on a, an employed or a self employed basis, and just around seventy five hundred of those um, we have in it as a student NPs. So these were registered nurses that decided to then go on to an advanced education. So. How that would relate to, say, a nationwide view is a little bit trickier. We have to go by maybe the stats that are put out by AANP. They reference that there's more than 248,000 NPs licensed in the U.S., so if we were, you know, relating it to that number, we're just around that 10% mark of uh, of a enforced penetration, and that's just for NSO. We we don't know, you know, how many others that might carry their own malpractice insurance. Exactly. Yeah. Now, do you insure nurses in supervised and collaborative relationships? Yes. So we insure all types of advanced practice nurses, nurse practitioners working in all different type of practice settings and under all different areas of certification or specialty. Okay. And when you insure them in collaborative relationships, if they are collaborative or supervising physician is insured by another company, does are they penalized for that or, or will you still carry them as well if one is with one company and one's with you? So that's a little bit trickier to answer only because we don't ask if on our application, if a nurse practitioner has coverage through another insurance company. But anecdotally, what I would say to that is that the coverage, you know, individual coverage is not 
it's not as expensive as, say, what a physician might pay, but it's also not inexpensive. Uh, a nurse practitioner might look to pay, you know, somewhere, depending on what state they're in and, and their specialty, they might look to pay somewhere between $1,200 and and just around $3,000 if they're in a full-time employed status. So just based on that, I would imagine that, and because we have heard uh from many of our insurers, our nurse practitioners, that they choose to take out their own liability policy that's supplemental to their employer-provided coverage. So between the cost of the insurance and um, the reasons behind why a nurse practitioner would take out their own, I don't see, we don't see many nurse practitioners saying that they have multiple carriers insuring them. Now, when you do insure MPs, do you take in consideration collaborating or or supervising physician claim or disciplinary history in determining the nurse premiums? So not for premium, but it's still a great question. We, with our premiums that we have for nurse practitioners, we really look at the overall enforce book that we have, all of the nurse practitioners that we have, and we look to see if the premiums that we are charging are enough to pay out claims not only for today, but in the future. And so each rate that we charge, because insurance is highly regulated, we have to file not only that rate, but the rationale for charging that rate with each state department of insurance. So the rates are really based on the claims, you know, experience for that book. But to your question, though, We do, in the application process, ask a few, just about four questions that we call our underwriting questions. They're to determine your eligibility for the program. And one of those questions, it doesn't really have anything to do with your rate, but it just asks if you are in a collaborating practice status that you have limits that are equal or greater to the physician that you're working with Um, because we don't want to make the NP the deep pocket there. And we just want to ensure that everyone has those same limits of liability in those circumstances. Have you all started back writing in uh, Florida? Yes, yes. we're in all states, yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, because you know that deep pocket was a problem there because they allowed the physicians to self-insure. That's correct, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are there other states where they allow physicians to self-insure like that? I'm not sure if I would know exactly if there were other states that allow that, but we do know that because we look at each state and we look at what might be going on in that state, we're very aware of states that we need to um, keep an eye on. And Florida, you're right, was one of those states a few years back. And so, you know, we had to take different strategies in that state for insuring um, nurse practitioners. Now, most states require nurse practitioners to have malpractice coverage, typically at the 1 million three incident level. Is this adequate, especially with regards to nurses who own their own practices? Sure. So that's a great question. And we get this question all the time from um, the nurse practitioners that we insure. And really, we look to our data to tell us if those limits are sufficient. And the most recent data set that we show, while it's still a great amount on, you know, we have a $1 million limit. And while some claims resolve at a low amount and some claims at a higher amount, on average, we know that we're going to pay out to an injured third party when negligence is proven just around 240 
$150,000 for nurse practitioners. That was found to be the average payment made to an injured third party in this most recent data set. Now, when you look at that and you look at the, what I'll call buckets of where claims are occurring, because of that, of that average and because of the $1 million limit, the data suggests that the $1 million per occurrence limit is sufficient for the claims that we are seeing it against nurse practitioners. And while we do we do have claims that resolve at the that policy limit, but I believe that's just around the three, three and a half percent mark. So when you consider majority of claims are occurring at those lower amounts and and by that average, the data suggests that that coverage is sufficient for the claims that we're seeing. Now, how long does it take? What's that average for settling or resolving the claims? Yeah, so um, we see claims that are all over the place. You know, we have, but I would have to go back to what the statute of limitations is in the state. And and while it does differ between states, majority of states, it's uh, around two years that a patient is able to make a claim of malpractice against a nurse practitioner. So if you consider that statute of limitations and that it might take an additional, you know, two two years to litigate the case, we see, you know, in, in that time frame of, of cases, you know, resolving and settling. So, it, you know, I say that lightly, but when a nurse practitioner might consider two, three, four years of their life defending, you know, one incident on one day, that certainly we know that that takes a toll on the nurse practitioners, especially because they're tirelessly working to provide, you know, great treatment and care to their patients. And so it, it is harrowing to, you know, go through this experience. Of course it is. Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, the Joint Commission tried to get people to admit when there were errors. So a healthcare provider was supposed to admit and apologize. I don't think that is really taken off because of the litigious nature of, um, of our patient population. Have you seen any of your nurse practitioners who come in and actually admit that I've done something wrong and I'm really sorry about it? So we see facilities employing a disclosure policy. You know, uh, we see that across the country because data the data does suggest that when it is used and when it is used per the facility policy it can have a positive effect on the decreasing the likelihood of a claim and decreasing the payment that's made on behalf of that nurse practitioner when when they are successful. Um, what we see and what we really try and make known to nurse practitioners is what is really going to build a credible defense for them is their documentation on that, around that patient and around that incident. As we, you know, we talked just about the statute of limitations and the time it takes to litigate just a minute ago. And, you know, I joke that I probably couldn't tell you what I had for dinner two nights ago, but if you're expecting me to tell you the detailed events of an incident that happened two years ago, four years ago, and to recall, you know, the treatment and care that I may have provided and the reasons around my a diagnosis, that would be um, certainly challenging to do. And really, for a nurse practitioner, the, the recall and the defense of those events are going to be found in that record and related to the proper and accurate documentation that's found in that record. Yes. I had a a good friend who was a pediatric nurse practitioner, and she was asked to go back and um, respond to uh, a malpractice suit that had occurred almost 15 years prior. And she was saved by by the the, uh, record. 
the actual documentation. Can you repeat what, that? Because yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even, I can't even envision going back, thinking back on 15 years of what I did 15 years ago in practice. That's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, without that, without that documentation, it's really, it becomes more difficult to, to build a defense. And so we can't stress enough the importance of documentation when it comes to um, liability lawsuits. Now, tell me a little about the rate of increase in awards and settlements. At what percentage of increase are we seeing from year to year? A 2% or 0.5% rate of increase in, in the actual awards, that average award that you give out? Yeah. So I mentioned that in the most recent um, five-year data set, we, on average, we were paying just $240,000 per each time that uh, negligence was proven on behalf of a nurse practitioner. But when we looked at the previous data set, we see, and that was the five years previous to this most recent data set, we see that the payment was, on average, $221,000. Before that, it was $186,000. And in 1999, it was $168,000. So by those standards, you can see the increases that have been occurring over the course of time, which is not is not a good story to tell, but it really is related to states moving into independent authority for nurse practitioners. It's related to the treatment that's allowed under their scope and for, you know, that push to really work to the fullest extent of their scope. It may even be related to the, you know, population of patients that nurse practitioners are seeing in all different types of practice settings. So all of these things are contributing to um, that increased payment. Are you seeing nurses use some of these new medical devices and artificial intelligence to help them better serve their clients? And are you seeing any lawsuits coming out of that use as well? That's a great question. Not related to devices, I would say we, we have seen any trends. We certainly look at technology as it relates to claims. Let me give you an example. So I know we've been talking about nurse practitioners, but related to our registered nurses, we also look at claims in that area. And when we looked at the same previous data set to the current, we saw medication administration claims decrease significantly, but the payment we were making increased significantly. So we thought, well, why is that? And what we found when we took a deep dive into the claims is that the technology, the computer order entry systems, they were bringing the rate or the distribution or the frequency of claims down in that area because the errors were being caught by the technology. Now, the increase in payment, though, what we found was that we were seeing higher payments because in order for that nurse to make that medication administration error, they bypassed the controls that were put in place to prevent that error in the first place. And we found that juries saw that as an egregious offense and really were awarding higher amount to patients for when those types of errors were occurring. So that might give you a sense of where technology plays a part in liability cases and that we do look into where technology is affecting cases, not just for nurses, but our nurse practitioners as well. In your analysis, too, of the frequency and severity by nurse practitioner specialty, I was surprised to see that emergency medicine was listed in that top 10. 
And I wanted to know why why were they up there? Because if the Affordable Care Act is working as it should, people shouldn't be utilizing the emergency room in great numbers. So I'm, I guess I was a little surprised that they even were on the radar. Yeah, so that, that was interesting to us too. So related to emergency medicine, it was number three for payment, but related to frequency, it wasn't it was in the top 10 but it it had a lower frequency as compared to other specialties but what we saw with emergency was that there was an increased frequency from our previous data set so we we said to ourselves well what had been happening you know between say 2012 and 2017 that would have caused you know an increase in claims in that setting and what we saw or what we found anecdotally was that that is when the Affordable Care Act was enacted and we did see a large rush of new patients using the emergency department in those years that were analyzed in the report. So that is that is why we feel the emergency medicine specialty saw an increased amount. We also saw increased frequency for um, nurses working in home health. And if you think about it this way, again, with the Affordable Care Act, because there were penalties now put for readmissions, facilities were pushing care to an outpatient setting. And so we saw increased claims in a home health setting for those reasons. That is interesting. That's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised, but also in the home health setting, too, they cannot do a, a direct, they can't direct bill in the home health setting. So they are always working under or through in an employment setting or in a collaborative setting in in the home health setting. So that if they thought somebody needed to be readmitted, they are being second guessed somewhere along the way about whether or not that admission occurs. So I can and see also, how that could, that could yeah. happen. Or they might say, I'm not going to say anything because I don't like the way the doctor responds. So that's a communications issue. Well, right. So in those instances, there were certainly findings that suggested, you know, if there was a change in the patient's condition, or were, was that nurse recognizing an emergent situation? Were they conveying that change to the larger interdisciplinary team or to their collaborating physician? And, you know, what interventions were they taking to resolve that matter um, for the patient? And so those were driving factors in those claims. And then about the allegations, I see here, once again, diagnosis is number one. Yes. And has been for a while. Yep. <laughs> and we also see that in, while other data is limited, we also see that in a competitor report that was put out that showed that they had similar findings where diagnosis was num- the number one allegation for nurse practitioners. It's just about a third of our claims. Yeah. What are you seeing are the deficiencies that are occurring with the diagnosis process? So diagnosis was, um, we looked at it in really two categories. One was failure to diagnose and another was delay in diagnosis. So really a common thread that kept running through some of these diagnosis-related claims was one, it started with a lack of sound documentation that really supported the nurse practitioner's clinical decision-making process. But really beyond that, um, some of the missing or incomplete areas were related to um, that history and assessment 
the medication list or a problem list that the nurse practitioner was looking at, that there, the notification of test results, were the tests ordered to begin with, what were the results, what was the timely interventions that that nurse practitioner needed to make related to the findings, you know, reminding folks that if the condition worsens to seek emergency treatment and really relaying those findings back to the patient and to make sure that they were getting the treatment that they needed from that. And again, are they using electronic medical records? Yeah, electronic medical records are very interesting because, you know, our data suggested that when electronic medical records were used versus, say, a handwritten record, that there was a decreased frequency of claims and the payments were less because of the the way the nurse practitioner or anyone on the team could go in and view, you know, what was going on with those patients in a timely and consistent approach. But what we are seeing for electronic medical records that are becoming sort of challenges for litigation is that electronic medical records have what is called, you know, metadata or audit trails. And so um, litigators are, are and, and plaintiff's attorneys are becoming very savvy to call for, for these audit trails so that they can see when the information was input into the electronic medical record, if there was an incident that occurred, who went into that record after the incident, what were they doing in that record after the incident, what additional documentation did they add after the incident. And so for us, that makes it very hard to defend if you know that your patient had an adverse outcome and then you're going back into the record to alter it in some way by adding additional documentation or, or changing information that made it look like you had this information at the time of the incident. So we, we advise our nurse practitioners to be not only aware of this, but also to you know consult with a risk manager or facility policy around how they're documenting or talking about the incident after they're they're made aware of an adverse outcome. Also, if they actually followed up to limit the harm associated with the with the bad outcome. Because if they did something to limit the harm, then that might be seen as a mitigating factor. But if they did nothing afterwards, you can see that in the data reports as well. From I mean in the right. ERs as well. And Yeah, um, I can't tell you how many times we see that in, in through the deposition process or the discovery process, that a nurse practitioner will tell us, well, I had that conversation with the patient. I just didn't document it. And unfortunately, you know that old adage, not documented, not done. Exactly. And, you know, with some of the electronic medical records, I still get upset because they document by exception. And mm. in those instances, unless you put a narrative in there, it doesn't reflect all that you might have done as well. So that's right. That is very problematic. Now, before we go, I want to ask you a real quick question about quality reporting, because, you know, Medicare is starting to do quality reports. Does any of that impact any of your of the litigation associated with advanced practice nurses? So do you have an example of that? I am just learning about it myself. They do quality reports quarterly is my understanding. They are given certain OASIS criteria that they have to adhere to and provide information on. So they are using that OASIS data sets to do the quality reporting. Right, right. I mean, I'm sure 
anything that has to do with quality, with patient safety goals, it can only be seen as a positive in a malpractice lawsuit. So any time a facility would take on taking these additional steps um, while I know it might be burdensome to go through these additional steps for the provider, anything that relates to quality or has patient safety goals in mind really is there for the protection of the patient and can protect you as well when you're following your facility policy in the event of a lawsuit. So I would say that these quality reports are most likely going to be used for alerting to incidents, near misses, and all of that that really goes into the training of the facility. It will shape facility policy and procedure, but always related to having a positive patient outcome in like this the situation. Ulcer, they, they're doing a deep dive into whether it was there before a patient went into a home care setting. They are making distinctions between ulcers and bruises or injuries that occurred from, let's say, a, a fall or some other instance. They are mm-hmm. typing them more precisely so that you can track the care. That's right. the kind of thing that they will be doing with it because they're using the OASIS parameters. Yeah. So I think it will be interesting. So any any evidence-based practice that they're putting, they're implementing to increase patient safety is always um, a good thing. I would just probably say to that, that from a liability perspective, if it was found that there were these policies or, and procedures put in place to have such a positive effect and the the provider was found to be going around these controls or not following policies and procedures is where they would get in trouble in a liability lawsuit. So just to be aware of that. Exactly. Now, before we close, what are some of your risk management recommendations? Well, sure. You know, this is always so great. There's so many things I know that can be incorporated into practice with positive patient outcomes in mind. But if I had to narrow it down to certain areas of focus, I mean, starting with, you know, knowing and complying with your state scope, your practice act, and your facility policies and procedures are key. You know, for nurse practitioners, because we saw medication errors and prescribing as a top area of loss for us, using safe prescribing practices, and there are many different resources out there for nurse practitioners, not only with NSO resources, but the Institute for Safe Medication Practices. They publish with a clear goal of medication error prevention strategies. So again, great resources there. And I really can't stress enough to follow documentation standards. I know we talked about that today, but that's really going to protect you in the event of a lawsuit and really help build that defense for you. And really just emphasize ongoing, you know, patient assessment, monitoring, and communication. So for us, they're the areas that we see that may seem simple. Believe me, it's not. There are a lot of things, small improvements that can be made um, around those topics with the goal of increasing patient safety and reducing the likelihood of a lawsuit. Thank you again for joining us, Jennifer Flynn. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And I know I'm going to call you back to talk about some of these other issues at a later date. I just want to remind our audience that we are going to put links up to the claim study. We are going to put links up to the safe prescribing practice info And we're going to put links up to the safety and risk management tools that NSO provides for nurses. They're wonderful tools. I have used them in lectures for years. 
because they really bring home what we need to focus on to make everybody safer, not just the patient, but also the nurse safer in this litigious environment. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please subscribe and leave us a positive rating on iTunes. Less Talk is a part of Carson Company, a nurse consulting firm. If you'd like to know more about us, about Carson Company, or the Less Talk podcast, please visit us at carsonco.net. We also have a Facebook page that is C-A-R-S-O-N-C-O dot net. Again, thank you and please join us next month for our next episode. We enjoy and support and love our advanced practice nurses and we want you to keep coming back and listening to this very timely information that's so important to your practice. Thank you again.